You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hey, this is Kate Wagner for my audio diary for the Cycling Podcast. It is the end of stage five. I'm standing or I'm sitting on the bed of my hotel, which is decorated with a bunch of uh, retro looking things. Uh, I think it's supposed to be like cute, like an antique st shop or something like that. But there's actually like candy taped on the walls. And I'm like, not sure if that's, can you eat it? Or I, I wouldn't eat it, but it, it does, it, it is, it is a little bit tempting. It's like candy and jars and stuff. It's like, is that, is that, is that for me? No. Okay. So yeah, so the time trial is really different uh, for us. Yeah, we go to the mix zone and I got this idea to go to the mix zone at like 1130 and just stand there all day and talk to whoever wanted to come by. And that was a good idea, uh, even though I'm, my feet hurt. I didn't really go into the press center today, uh, but I did get to see... It's fascinating, the time trial, because they come in one by one. So you can really see them up close and, you know, get a chance to um, to talk to, to sort of more guys. Uh, the weather was bad, so they didn't stop for long. But uh, I did get some good, good stuff. Yeah, it was a crazy time trial, as we all would know from episode of the Cycling Podcast. But uh, I tell you what, like, <laughs> it's funny to me because, you know, I... <laughs> I know Roglic pretty well at this point, and I didn't see that coming. I didn't see him coming back like that. And to see him come back like that after the injury is just unbelievable. Uh, and of course, you know, we can't forget Matthew, Matthew Vanderpool staying in yellow. Amazing. Beating off Tade Pagacha to stay in yellow, holding him off. Amazing. And then Tade, he's unreal. He's the real deal. The thing that really struck me about him is he, uh, like, there's a, there's a moment in the time trial where he, like, looks back at the camera and gives, like, this really kind of flirtatious, like, seductive smile. It's like, aha, you know, he's the boy prince, and he was in, in resplendent form today. He had to feel bad for Stefan Kung, though, and he came by and answered some questions that uh, Richard had. Uh, but he's, yeah, he, he looks pretty crushed. Yeah, so we'll see, but it was a different experience, even though I had to stand out there in the rain. It wasn't so bad. I was fine standing out there in the rain, even though I didn't have an umbrella, because I'm just that determined to, to do my job. So yeah, that's my short little audio diary for today on Stage 5. Hello, this is Kate for the Cycling Podcast. We're hotel report. We're staying at a chateau that is very beautiful, uh, very uh, 19th century classic French chateau. It's huge. Uh, the rooms are very splendidly decorated with wallpaper. Uh, yeah, when I'm not so hungry, I'll probably talk more about it. But for now, it's a uh, pretty splendid. There's a big soaking tub, which I'm going to take advantage of because it was hot as hell today. And uh, yeah, it wasn't really a great day for me. Uh, I kind of like came with like one mission, which was to talk to 
had AFI gotcha and that never happened. So that's annoying. But, you know, you know what else is annoying? Me. I'm very, I can be very annoying. And I plan to be as annoying about this as possible. And if it never materializes, then I'm just going to write about how annoying I was being and that it never happened. But yeah, anyways, not, it was like hot and miserable and not really that, it was a lot of driving today. I didn't even have to drive because I can't drive, but Richard was driving a lot today. Kind of like one of the staler days at the tour. But I'm uh, looking forward to, and that's the thing, you know, they can't all be bangers. I mean, the, the stage was great as far as like Cav winning again, getting closer and closer to the Merck's record, which is pretty sweet, honestly. I think he could probably do it if he uh, continues on like this. But for us, you know, it's a little bit different. Yeah, it was kind of a tiring day and no one stopped in the mix zone after really. Richard got to talk to Casper Askreen. Uh, Michael Morkow, but I, none of the people I was looking for showed up. They all just like go. If they don't have to talk, like they won't talk. So it was definitely one of those days. So I didn't get like any interviews today, which is like really annoying. <laughs> but yeah, I think part of my thing is like I'm just like a little too over eager and asking for a little too much too soon. But you have to ask, you know, that's part of your job. It's like I said, bring me Wilco Kelderman. Except for, I didn't ask that today. I didn't ask for him. I probably could have. He's not having a great time these days. Uh, but I did hear Ida Schelling talking to TV guys saying that he wasn't going to go in the break tomorrow because he wanted to help out his beleaguered GC men, which is admirable. So uh, we'll see. Uh, it's like uh, really interesting... <sighs> race so far uh tomorrow could be interesting i think it's a day for the breakaway tomorrow uh so i might ask to talk to some breakaway guys trying to think who thomas DeGent, maybe any of the lotto guys at this point don't think roger clue will go back out there but it's nice it's funny to me that they just built like this incredible like french chateau in the middle of nowhere pretty wild I'll talk more about the architecture later. I need to, <laughs> I need a beer. All right, that's me signing off. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Kate from the Cycling Podcast. Walking back down from Le Grand Bonnet, stage eight. I guess this is, uh, I like to capture a little bit of my, uh, own reaction here. Yeah, just was watching the, uh, Eurosport guys interview Tade Fagacha. And it's really strange to be close to something so unbelievably powerful. It's frightening. I don't know, it's all I can think about is uh, I can't really breathe, honestly. Um, I don't know how to even say this without sounding like a freak, but have you ever 
you know when you walk into a building like say like you know a gothic cathedral and that moment of just unbelievable awe where your heart kind of just lurches in your chest and your stomach sinks and it's like so sublime and expansive this thing that you're witnessing something truly extraordinary that you're in some kind of presence like almost a divine presence though I shouldn't say that but I already did I already said it so yeah it's like that being in the presence of the boy is like that and unbelievably calm and serene individual with just like you could tell that he has absolute certainty about the world and about his place in it and nobody has that nobody except him you could tell he was so happy to be there in the yellow jersey again. His eyes sparkled. And he was beautiful. Just striking. And you know you're in the presence of something that is going to change everything. And you're there at the moment of transition into a dynasty, into, you know, whatever, the era of Fagacha, but... I wanted, I, slay, I stayed around after in the mix zone, even though it was raining, even though I would never, I'll never get a chance to talk to him probably ever in my life. But, yeah. I just wanted to be there at the moment of, of triumph, of transition. I wanted to witness history. And I feel changed by it in some way I can't define. Things are different now here. Everyone's depressed. Everyone wants to go home because they think the race is over. But I keep saying no race is over until they ride into Paris. And they're a long way off from that. It's beautiful here. In the Alps. Where the mist of rain mixes with the conifers and obscures the sky. And as the weather changes, so too does the course of the race. I wouldn't even say it's that boy's race to lose. It's just his task to complete it. But you can't hate him. He's not... I'm so conflicted because it's like, oh, I'm here for three weeks and I have to cover this. And it's just he's going to be a walk in the park for him, but... To see him there, to see him standing there like that. Honestly, it's one of those things where you witness it in life and it kind of makes you want to cry. Though I cry at everything. But I never feel that way in the presence of people. It's always buildings or places like this where the Alps tower above you. But in this case, it was this. I guess this is a private thing for me to share. Uh, and everyone's probably going to call me like a fangirl or whatever, though. We all know that that's not true. I've never seen anyone own glory like the way he does. He is a prince. 
but he's not really a prince anymore. Now he's really <laughs> the boy king. In gold. Let us bear witness at the throne. That's from my report from stage eight. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Hey everyone, Sam again. So just back to the bus now, post-race. Uh, wasn't the day for me, wasn't supposed to be. Um, got through a lot of the race, um, just it started to kick off again on the fifth and sixth lap and it just i wasn't able to go with uh with the group so uh unfortunately dnf but i was able to to help david and keep him in position towards the back end of the race and uh he was a really really strong fighting performance from david lozano a uh, really strong climber so great to see him up there um It was a really strong and stacked field, fast. Uh, it was a selection after selection, so uh, not too disappointed. I mean, I would have liked more, but um, what I had today is everything I gave, and I was able to help my teammates, so uh, that's as important as anything. Um, so thank you very much for following through the race, and uh, I really appreciate it, so thank you very much. This is Kate Wagner for the Cycling Podcast. This is my July 6th audio diary entry. I'm sitting in my hotel here in Valence. Valence. That's right. Yeah, time has this really annoying way of going by unnoticed like what stage are we on again nine i think so the race might be extraordinary but for me every day is kind of similar uh in the mornings i lay in bed in whatever hotel or chateau we're staying in though now it's just me alone i'm no longer with richard and francois uh and i think of what it is i have to do who it is i have to talk to how i'll spend you know my words plan my day some of the writers i like to talk to Some of them I like to talk to so much that they lend me a reason for doing any, if not all, of this. And uh, some of them <laughs> infuriate me to no end. Some of them are unapproachable, and I fear some of them hate me, though I'm never sure if it's me specifically they hate or my ilk, aka journalists. Anyways, I have a certain amount of work I have to get done on a given day. Sometimes it's a feature in the middle of the week, 2,000 words. Sometimes it's a newsletter for derailer.net. Sometimes it's illustration. Sometimes it's this, this audio diary, the cycling podcast, etc. However, most of the day is spent riding in cars. It's like an hour to the mix zone and then two to three to the finish. Uh, this, and you know, the scenery passes by. It's like accompanied by the race on GCN. 
or drafts of the cycling podcast or music sometimes or idle conversation. Every once in a while, like someone will, in the car, usually Francois will make a phone call. He's always on phone calls. They all sound very important. I never make phone calls because I told everyone who's not a part of the race not to call me. I'll call them. I'll miss Richard and Francois who have been like really great company. Uh, but not really for so long because A, I see them, I'll see them every day in the mix zone and in the press room and B, I'll see them on Saturday. I'll be staying with them on Saturday again, so I look forward to that. The days on the tour are actually quite long. Like I get up around eight and then sort of lumber around like a moron for an hour, daydreaming, thinking about things. Kind of like my time of planning and reflection, like I said earlier. Then I eat breakfast, usually croissants, which I never thought I would get tired of because there's kind of a delicacy in the US, but I'm like starting to get a little bit tired of them. And then it's driving. Well, riding for me because I don't drive. Like uh, when I'm home, I ride a bike with panniers, which is uh, not driving. Then it's an hour in the mix zone, shoved in like cattle with your colleagues on the factory farm with two minute sound bites. Uh, every day we all watch with envy as the comms directors deliver the yellow jersey wearer to the television men and never us. We never see him, we never ask him questions except for in the after race presser. We never get any time with him whatsoever. He may as well not exist for us. Us being the written press. You know, but I find ways to observe him. Tare Pagacha. And this occupies actually a decent chunk of my time. Uh, especially after the stage when I'll kind of like linger around the TV pens just like a parasite to, to just have them stand there like five feet away from me. Uh, and yeah, after the seventh stage, which I think I did an audio diary about this too, I stood there and I watched him be interviewed by Eurosport. And uh, Tede doesn't like to look into the like the looming gaze of the camera. So he decided to kind of just like stare at me as like something to stare at, like head on instead of just like, yeah, for the full two minutes of the interview. And I kind of like just stared back at him because like, yeah, it's, it doesn't intimidate me. But at the same time, he, he does actually. Uh, like I know in my heart of hearts that he's just a kid who probably reads like dumb crap on the internet, like the best of them and well, you know, likes fast cars and like bad pop music and whatever. But when he's in that jersey, he's very much like a little king and the whole experience always leaves me rather shaken, you know, like as though I'm in the presence of something far more extraordinary than I am capable of comprehending, much less being. And I guess royalty is like that, I suppose, you know, our boy king. No longer boy prince, certainly boy king now at this point. So yeah, writing for a living is mostly uh, an invisible process. It takes place internally, and honestly, it's not something I think about most of the time, except for when I'm proofreading. Words just like come into the brain and go out through the fingers like it's as natural as any other biomechanical process. Like drawing requires technique, but writing is just a conversion rate for the brain. <laughs> it sucks up the time and somehow one is able to produce words while the race is blaring in one's ears in like two different languages. Uh, I was proofreading until the final 10 kilometers of the stage today and right after Mark Cavendish further cemented his title as perhaps the greatest printer of all time, I went back to my little computer and made my little fingers type out my little words until the press conference, which is more of a formality than anything else. You know, one wonders if the questions produced there are really for the cyclist to answer, or rather than they're a sort of kind of demonstration of knowledge on behalf of the askers. And perhaps this is why I don't ask any questions at the press conferences. 
Most of the day I spent actually watching the race, just like everyone else does on television. Which, honestly, this is still unusual for me because I'm used to watching the race at like 5 in the morning and having the rest of the day afterward to write about watching the race. However, most of the day at the tour is, like I said, spent driving. And the race is another few hours, or the end of the race is another few hours. And then it's more driving. And then it's dinner. And then the day is over. And one wonders, like, where did it go? <laughs> it was spent traversing from one point to another, not that much different from the cyclists themselves. Like, everyone wants to know what it's like to be on the tour as a writer, and yeah, it's nice. It's a lot of work, but still, it's not so bad for me, because I'm writing for print, and my deadlines are not immediate. My pieces are mostly reflective, and I can take time to write them. Whereas, like, some guys just have to get quotes literally every single day. And those quotes are online by the time most of us get to the press room somehow. I don't know how they do that. The press room always seems to be in a sports complex, often with a rock climbing wall, which makes me wish I brought, you know rock climbing stuff but they probably won't let me rock climb for liability reasons but uh yeah on the rest day there's like actually no rest for the press ever <laughs> it's not really a rest day for the writers either because like they actually go train in the morning and then they do press stuff like basically after 1 p.m to sometimes like late in the evening like seven or eight so don't ask me what happened on the rest day because don't ask me really to reflect because I was on the phone literally from noon until four and everything that happened before noon involves plotting what to say on the phone to the like six different people I talked to. Uh, some of them were, uh, yeah, I talked to, some of them were editors at like the magazine that I'm writing for or and my editor at the, res uh, the magazine that I'm writing for. Then I talked to a literary agent. Then I talked to an editor at a different magazine that I don't yet write for. Then I talked to pro cyclists, like I think four or five different ones. Uh, and yeah, and then the day was over. And then I plugged all this stuff in the transcription software. <laughs> it's like, I know this is a very interesting uh, audio diary <laughs> spent uh, really delving into. Yeah, this is actually what it's like. I know it sounds really glamorous, but I promise you that we're not all like on the back of motorbikes. Uh, dictating what happens to the race to some newspaper reporter like it's on this like like this is the 60s or something no actually all of us are just crammed in like it's on like a massive room that with no air conditioning uh churning out words for money <laughs> i know this sounds unglamorous and i'm really sorry to ruin the illusion but uh it is just uh, yeah but i mean i live for it it's kind of addictive <laughs> in its own way yeah, I guess this brings me to another thing everyone, I guess, wants to know, which is what it's like to talk to pro cyclists all the time. And the answer to that is it depends. Some of them are fantastic, wonderful people I thoroughly enjoy conversing with. In fact, I oft often find myself wishing I could do so out of the formal setting of an interview. And I think perhaps like the best example of this is Matej Mokoric, who on the rest day spoke to me about everything from traffic calming devices to the fires in the Gulf of Mexico, to winning the Junior World Championships, to what he was reading. And he bemoaned finishing the three books he'd brought in the first week to read. He's already done with them. Uh, and I don't know if he or his comms guy is listening to this, but if you are, I've got an extra book in English I could lend him if he's interested. Some of the guys, however, are difficult. And honestly, mostly it's because they're exhausted. Uh, wouldn't you be if you were them? That's a good question. Everyone on UAE Team Emirates is like tight-lipped and banged up and not really in the mood to deal with any more stress besides that which comes with defending the yellow jersey in the rather scrappy way they have to go about doing so. 
yeah, they're not usually in a good... First of all, they're hard to get to because it's the Yellow Jerseys team. And second of all, they're really stressed out. Uh, you kind of feel bad for talking to them. I feel bad for talking to Mark Hershey after the time trial when he was clearly in so much pain. So, Mark, I am so sorry. Uh, please talk to me again at some point. Uh, when you're not in so much pain. And I'm sorry for asking about the, the pain when you were in so much pain. Like, what else were you going to say except for, ah, it hurts, you know. Yeah, terrible. That was, like, the worst part of the whole tour for me, to be honest. And, like, some writers, yeah, just, you know, don't have that much to say. After all, like, what can one say about bike racing other than, you know, I hope I'm good at it today. I hope I have the good legs. You know, et cetera, et cetera. I hope I don't crash. <laughs> but, yeah, I try to give all of them the benefit of the doubt. And besides, the mix zone is less a place to have, like, a real conversation and more a kind of stockyard for getting quotes. Uh... <laughs> Now that I'm on my own again, I have more time to work and can settle back into the mindset of solitude that comes when one's traveling. Uh, so I'm sitting here in my like hotel room trying to come up with things to say. It's like an okay hotel room. It's clean and modern, which is all one can ask for. It's like slightly better than a Campanile. The mattress is a little stiff. It's definitely not Richard and Francois accommodations, but it will do. It will do. I guess everyone here is uh, expecting me to say something deep and introspective about Roglic leaving. Um, but Henry, I obviously had a lot of feelings about this when it happened, uh, though you could tell from my sort of emotional diary from the day. Uh, I saw it coming after stage three and really had plenty of time to brace myself for it. Uh, I'm mostly heartbroken for him, you know, for his loss, which he's accepted with such grace as he always does with loss, which is he's, he's probably one of the best losers in cycling history in terms of, like, the graciousness of it. Uh, it's like he always does. It's a testament to his resilience and his pretty much impeccable character. Uh, but also with Roglic especially, it's easy to pin emotion on him that just isn't there. It's easy for us to infer that he feels a certain way when in reality... He's, like, kind of got the brain of a champion and has probably, as sad as he is, he's probably already moved on to thinking about the Vuelta <laughs> at this point. It's really tempting to to to, to project our emotions uh, as followers of the sport, whether you're, like, a fan or as a journalist or as someone who writes about the human condition, onto him. But the thing about Roglic is that he really is always looking forward and never back. And to be honest, this makes him sometimes rather annoying to interview, but it also makes his whole outlook on life quite a bit healthier for someone of his particular profession. Still, I'd be lying if I said I won't miss seeing him in the morning, and there will be other times, however, for me to see him, and I'm sure of it. I'm also going to go to the Vuelta. <laughs> I'm going to like use the money I make going to the Tour to go to the Vuelta, because I have a problem. I was actually originally going to go to the Vuelta. The Tour, like I said in my first audio diary, was a real impulse decision. And the reason I wanted to go to the Vuelta is because I have like passable Spanish that I could use uh, in like a traveling situation. Yeah, that'll be a little bit easier for me because I literally speak no French. And I just kind of like bumble around like a small child uh, all the time being really pathetic about not speaking French. Though most of the time I can kind of get away with it because I'm like a little bit cute and also I'm so very clearly lost that I think people just feel bad for me. <sighs> yeah. I don't really want to think about Robux that much. It's a little too sad. Anyways, tomorrow is Mont Ventoux. Uh, 
Yeah, wow. Wow, huh? Yeah, it's a bald face being perhaps the most iconic climb in cycling, and it is definitely the defining stage of this Tour de France. Who knows, maybe uh, Mazorski wrote the piece Night on Bald Mountain about Montmartre too. I don't know if that's true. It's probably about a mountain in Russia, but in my mind, it's about Montmartre too. That's all that matters. The opportunity to visit Montfantu feels rather like traveling to see a celebrity. And coming from Pamphlet Chicago, the idea of climbing something like that seems decidedly impossible. And yet, they have to do it. And they have to do it twice. That's cycling. Just when you go through a week that can't seem to get any more brutal, the sport finds yet another way to whittle down the weak and test the strong. Hence, going into week two, huh? You know, I'd like to just think that I'm still listed amongst the ranks of the latter, the strong. And so on this really freaking rainy day, I leave you all with that. On to week two, adieu. So is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.